my youngest brother, Jonathan, when he was four, five, six years old, one of his favorite things to do was to create what he called potions. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, if you've got little kids, you've been around little kids, but uh, he, he would take, you know, a bucket, a glass, you know, whatever he could find, and he would spend hours, you know, wandering around the house, outside the house, and just combining elements, you know, a little dish soap, a little mouthwash, um, some puddle water, some sand, some leaves, you know, you mix it all together, and, and man, you get, you, get, you get some really cool potions. Uh, he, he loved doing this. Um, one Sunday, he was very excited. My family got home from church, and he had somehow gotten a hold of uh, a squeeze-it bottle. So if you're not a child uh, or, you know, teen in the 90s as I was, you may not be familiar with this. It's just a, you know, sugar water they marketed to children, and they put it in this opaque class- plastic bottle meant to look like a Coke bottle. Well, John had gotten a hold of one of these. I don't know how, but he was super excited because he thought right away this would be a great vessel for a potion, right? So we get home from church, and he spends, you know, the first hour or so home making a potion. He's putting grass, toothpaste, you know, whatever he can get his hands on. He's putting in here, mixing it up. He took forever doing this. And then, of course, he wants to show it off. You know, he brings it, JJ, look at my potion. Oh, yeah, it's a very cool potion you've got there. Shows my mom, mom, look at my potion. Oh, yes, John, what a great job. What a nice potion. Uh, and then he walks into the living room uh, where my dad is watching football, and in the way of football fans everywhere, uh, my dad is locked in. I mean, he's a Cleveland Browns fan. He lives and dies with the Cleveland Browns at this point. I mean, mostly dies with the Cleveland Browns. But he, he's watching, he's locked in, he's focused. And you might be familiar with this. My, my brother walks in and he says, hey, dad, check out my potion. And my dad, like sports fans everywhere, like myself these days, responds by going, huh, what? And then he just sees my brother holding out a squeeze-it bottle. And so my dad, you know, half his brain on the game, just grabs the bottle, tips it back, and takes a nice long drink from the squeeze-it bottle. He start, immediately starts choking, spitting this thing out. John, John, what, what's in here? What's in here? You know, no, not much, Dad. Grass, dirt, toothpaste, you know, this, the, whole, the whole deal. Uh, you should know, no parents were harmed in the making of the sermon illustration. Everyone was fine. Uh, but, but my dad did learn a very important lesson from that experience, which was, if you're going to drink from open drink containers, it's important to trust the person bringing it to you, right? It's a good lesson. Uh, I share that with you because this morning we're continuing our series out of 2 Corinthians, uh, and we're going to find ourselves really being dropped right into the middle of a long-running conversation between Paul and the church in Corinth that will now have spanned several letters and several visits. Uh, and the issue we're going to be talking about this morning is an issue of trust. Uh, although in Corinthians, it's, it's trust in, in the teachers of the gospel rather than trust in beverage service. But it, it's also about trust. And specifically, the church in Corinth wants to know how they can tell, how can they tell who to trust, whom to trust among all these people claiming to be teachers, preachers, or ministers of the gospel about Jesus. Now, as I said, when we get to our passage, it's going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're really coming in, I mean, not even halfway. We're like two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through this conversation. There's a lot of history behind it. And so before we get to the text today, I, I want to do two things. First, I, I want to try and explain to you 
why this issue has come up at all. Why is it that the church in Corinth is worried about this? Why are they trying to figure out, why is it important to them to figure out how they can discern trustworthy teachers from untrustworthy teachers? And then second, I want to take a couple minutes after that to try and, and bring you up to, to the present moment, that is when Paul is writing this letter, and, and let you know some of the history that's already transpired around this. Then we'll get to our text, and I think it'll make a lot more sense when we get there. All right, so first, why are they concerned? Well, I think it's good to start this morning by acknowledging that this is, in fact, a very good and very important question. They should be concerned about this. And for that matter, we should be concerned about it too. This should be something we think about. Uh, from what we can tell, and it's actually worth noting that in this, with regards to this issue, we can actually tell rather a lot. If you pull together all the New Testament letters we have, we actually have a fair amount of information uh, and we, we can learn that there were a number of people that were in the Mediterranean area, traveling around the Mediterranean area, teaching and preaching about Jesus, and there were a number of them uh, that were just false teachers. Uh, some of them possibly had good motives. They just were confused. They didn't have the whole picture. Others were not maybe such good motives, deliberately leading people astray, deliberately proclaiming a gospel they knew was contrary to what Paul and the apostles had taught. Uh, now, almost every letter written by Paul to a church, so if you go through and look, almost every letter, we know this because almost every one of those letters has a section where Paul is going to push back against either false teaching or false teachers or both. Uh, so, the Corinthians are right to be concerned about this. It was a real problem, and it was one they themselves had some experience with. Uh, and really, for any young church, this is, a, this is an important issue. It's an important question. They need to know when someone shows up and claims to be speaking on behalf of Jesus, they need to be able to discern if this person should be trusted or not. And keep in mind, at the time Paul writes this, uh, there's no New Testament yet. Uh, some of the letters that Paul and others have written are starting to be copied and circulated, but there's no canon. There's no New Testament that they can just take these teachings and compare it to, to the New Testament and see for themselves. Uh, there certainly are no seminaries, no denominations, you know, handing out degrees or ordination certificates, so they can't rely on credentials. So, so if you put yourself in their shoes, how are they supposed to know? How are they supposed to know when someone shows up claiming to expand upon the teaching of Paul or Peter, how do they know if this person can be trusted to speak the truth? How are they to judge wisely? Uh, this is an important question, and the church in Corinth is right to be concerned about it. Uh, so Paul, we'll see as we get ahead, I just want to make it clear, Paul has no issue with this question per se. What Paul is going to disagree with them on is how they have answered it, both now and in the past. So, all right, that's the first part. They, they're concerned about this because it's a relevant concern. Uh, there are people who are teaching things contrary to what Paul himself teaches, uh, and the, first, the Corinthians have experience of some of these people. And one of the things we know from the letter we call 1 Corinthians and from parts of 2 Corinthians uh, is that at some point in the past, after Paul had planted the church and after Paul had moved on to start ministering elsewhere, other teachers had shown up, and they had led the Corinthians astray. And the Corinthians had trusted them 
because they were using a very unreliable method for determining trustworthiness. Specifically, that many in the church had in fact been persuaded to trust these new teachers because of their wealth and their eloquence. Now, we should say right away that Scripture points out, I mean, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, that this is a very common human means of evaluating people. Uh, whatever, for whatever reason, it's just human nature. We often conflate uh, you know, material and social success with trustworthiness. And it turns out the people of ancient Corinth were just as susceptible to this as we are today. And just as we often assume that wealthy people in our own culture, uh, people of high status, just as we often assume, you know, they have some special knowledge or special wisdom, right? We, we make gurus of people who are successful in one area and we start taking their advice in a whole host of other areas. Uh, that, that's exactly a symptom of this kind of thing. And just as we are prone to doing that today, they fell victim to that in Corinth. They decided that the wealth and status and eloquence of these new teachers was proof of God's favor, proof that they were teaching the truth. In other words, many in the church decided that because they, were, they could be trusted because they were socially and financially successful. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife Heidi and I watched a little docu-series on Netflix about Bernie Madoff. Uh, we watched it because I've always been a little bit curious about this. You know, I've read some articles, I've seen some stories. I have a little bit of an understanding of, of the scam that he was running, for the most part. But, you know, you can't help looking at it and wondering, how did this go on for so long? How, how did people keep contributing money to what was a scam for decade after decade after decade? How was it that our government regulatory authorities that exist to detect and shut down just these type of scams, how is it that nobody figured out what he was doing? How, how is it this could go on for year after year and nobody noticed, nobody asked any hard questions? Well, I'll save you a little time if you haven't seen it. It won't spoil it for you. But, but I'll tell you what, you what you'll find out right away as you watch. The reason why people kept giving money right up until the end, the reason why the SEC actually looked into him a couple times but didn't ask any hard questions or dig very deep, is because Bernie was successful. He was wealthy. He had all the right connections. He rubbed elbows with all the right people, including, by the way, people in Congress, people that ran the SEC. Uh, he, he had charisma. He had wealth. He had success. And that led lots of people to believe that he could be trusted. And look, I, I'll freely admit, you don't have to if you don't want to, you know, I watched that and thought to myself, you know, to be fair, if I was one of these people who had been given the opportunity, I probably would have trusted him too. It's just a, hu a natural human tendency to conflate those things, to interpret success financially and socially as trustworthiness. And so this is what's happened in the church in Corinth. And now in response to this, what Paul has done is something fairly simple but fairly powerful. Primarily in 1 Corinthians, what Paul does is he points simply but emphatically at the life and ministry of their Lord and Savior Jesus. And he asks the Corinthians, if this is how you're going to judge trustworthiness, if this is how you're going to decide who can be trusted and who can't, what is that standard going to make of Jesus? What is that method going to make of the crucified, 
and rejected Messiah. After all, Jesus came into the world with no status to speak of and no wealth, and over the course of his life, he never really acquired much of either. And later, his short ministry ended abruptly, not in success, but in almost universal rejection and an execution by the Romans. And yet, Paul will remind them over and over and over, despite this lack of financial success, despite his total lack of connections with the right people, it's Jesus that God exalted to the highest place. It's Jesus that God vindicated publicly through his resurrection on the third day. It's Jesus that God gave the name that is above every name. And it's Jesus and Jesus alone to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so Paul asks, if that's how God works, if that's our Lord and our Savior, then how can you use the standard to judge others when it fails so clearly with him? Uh, listen with me if, as I read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28, I think, or 29. I think it's just worth reading. It's a powerful, powerful little passage. Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to, ch to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. From what we can tell, this particular issue took a long time for Paul and the church in Corinth to iron out. Uh, a lot of people there were pretty insistent that this was a reliable way to determine who was trustworthy, and it took Paul multiple letters and a surprise in-person visit to finally persuade them uh, that this is not the way that God judges people, and it's not the way that they should either. Uh, but by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, he seems to have persuaded a majority of the church of his point of view. Uh, most of them now, as he writes this letter, recognize that wealth and status and eloquence on their own are not proof either of trustworthiness or lack of trustworthiness. They're just not all that closely related in either direction. But if that's true, if those are not reliable means of determining who's trustworthy, and Paul certainly seems to think that that's the case, then that just brings us back to square one, doesn't it? So if, if that's not a good way to determine who is trustworthy, then the question for the church in Corinth is still the same. Well, okay, if we can't use that standard, then what are we to do? How are we to know when people show up if they should be trusted? Well, that brings us finally, thanks for hanging in there, to our passage for today. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now here, Paul's going to respond to their latest attempt at separating trustworthy teachers from those who are not. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, 
written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. So, all right, let me, let me try and bring you up to where we are in the conversation, right? So we had, they raised this question. Uh, they've been led astray by, by wrongly trusting people simply because uh, they were eloquent, charismatic, and wealthy. And Paul says that's not a reliable way to do it. And he finally persuades them and they say, okay, that's not a reliable way to do it. Well, apparently what happens next is some in the church say, yep, that's not a good way to do it. A better way of determining who is trustworthy is to ask for letters of recommendation. When people show up and they want to they teach, they want to speak on behalf of Jesus, if we don't know those people, we should ask for a letter of recommendation from somebody we do know, from someone that we already trust. Uh, they have decided that these letters of recommendation is a better solution. And apparently, looking at chapter 3, verse 1, some of them have therefore decided that Paul needs to supply them with a letter of recommendation. Now, before we get to Paul's response, let's just establish this is a better way of determining who is trustworthy. Uh, letters of recommendation, you probably know they're not a perfect system, but they are and can be very helpful, especially if they come from someone you already know and trust. And we should point out, Paul himself makes use of just such letters. In Philippians 2, Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He tells them that he is going to send Timothy and he takes this paragraph in, in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, I'm sending Timothy to you, and you should know. I have worked with Timothy for years, taught with him, served with him, and I am persuaded, Paul says, I am convinced that he is a good and godly man, and I, Paul, trust Timothy, and so you, the church in Philippi, you can trust him too. Uh, Paul does this. He, he not only does it in the letters we have, he'll reference letters of recommendation he sends. So this is a better solution. They are used by Paul. And, and you can maybe tell from the tone, we'll notice Paul's a little irritated, but he's objecting not to the idea of letters of recommendation. He's objecting to the idea that he needs to supply one. And here's where I think we can put ourselves in Paul's shoes a little bit, and you can understand why that might be why this might cause Paul a little bit of anguish. Remember, Paul helped plant this church. And, and when I say he helped plant the church, I mean, Paul and a couple of his friends showed up in Corinth, a city where if there were any people who were followers of Jesus, it would have been a very, very few. These guys showed up and just started, they just started going out in the city and proclaiming the good news about Jesus. They walked out into a city where they knew hardly anyone and just started saying that this Jewish man was in fact the Savior and Lord of the world. And they did it over and over. And gradually as the Holy Spirit convicted hearers of the truth, this little group started to form. And then for a year and a half, Paul stayed with this group. He nurtured it, he taught it, he served with them, and he helped get this church on its feet. And so I think what I see Paul saying here is, look, by all means, ask for a letter of recommendation from people you don't know, from people who haven't shared their heart and their life with you. But Paul says, you do know me. I have shared my life with you. I've shared my heart with you. I've served and worshiped with you. You don't need a letter from me. You know me. So Paul tells them, but, but in a very, I think this is very Pauline. I kind of 
I love these little things where we can see a little bit of the personality shine through. And once you see it, you'll see Paul is like this in all sorts of places. So Paul says, you, you absolutely should not, you should not need a letter from me. But if you're going to insist on a letter, Paul says, I've got something better for you. I've got a whole bunch of letters. And then he looks at them, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, you don't need a written letter of recommendation from me because you are my letters of recommendation. You are my letters. And he builds this out into this really cool little analogy. Look again at verses two through three. And notice it's this whole analogy of the people as the letter. And if you think about it, I think it turns out to be really cool. He says, look, you people in Corinth, Christians in Corinth, you are the letters of recommendation for Paul, written on behalf of Paul, written by whom? Written by Jesus Christ himself. And not with ink, but by the Holy Spirit. Written not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. To be known and read by everyone. Uh, this is a dense but awesome analogy. I just want to take a minute to unpack it a little bit. Paul says, look, you don't need a letter of recommendation from me, from Peter or James, because you have something better. If you would just look around at each other, you would recognize that what you already have in each other are letters of recommendation for Paul written by the Lord Jesus himself. And what he means is simply this, that their salvation, the new life that they have in Christ right now through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the proof of Paul's ministry. It's proof that Paul can be trusted, not because he knows the right people, not because he has the right credentials, not because he's wealthy or eloquent, but because there is clear evidence of God's work, of the power of God working through Paul's life and ministry. And they are that evidence. Just consider the opposite, right? If Paul had shown up in Corinth and preached a false gospel, then they would not be saved. If Paul had misled them, they would not have the Holy Spirit. Do they want proof that Paul can be trusted? They are the proof. They are the living, breathing letters they are the proof to each other that the power of God has been at work through Paul. In other words, God's work through Paul and Timothy has proven that they can be trusted. Look down at chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. That's why Paul can say, Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Look, I love this. When he's pressed, when he's got this little group in Corinth pressing him for his bona fides, pressing for proof that he's someone who can be trusted, Paul is able to say confidently, he says, look, I'm not embarrassed to say I speak on behalf of Jesus. He says that pretty clearly there at the end of chapter two. And he says, I'm confident, not because of my own ability, not because of my status, but because you have seen God at work through my ministry. You've seen it. You are the proof. Your very salvation, church in Corinth, is the proof that the gospel I preached to you is the truth. Because that message, the truth about Jesus Christ, that message and no other has the power to produce new life in dying people. 
in the ancient world, uh, in ancient Babylon, there was a king named Hammurabi, and he produced uh, these interesting little stone pillars, because they call them steels. Um, we call this, and what's engraved on it, we call today the code of Hammurabi. Um, it's not really technically a legal code, like we would think of a legal code today. It's better to think of this as a piece of ancient propaganda. Uh, so Hammurabi had a bunch of these made, and he had them all engraved, and then he had them taken and placed all around his kingdom. He did this because most of the people he claimed to rule are never going to lay eyes on him. They're never going to meet him. Uh, there's no you know, TV for them to, to look and see what he looks like, to hear what he sounds like, for them to judge him in any sort of way. There's no internet where they can look up information about King Hammurabi. Um, so he took matters into his own hands. He designed his own propaganda, and then he deployed it. And so what he engraves on here are, are some laws and legal decisions examples of what he thinks makes him a, a wise and great ruler. And his hope is he's going to come, he'll plant one of these in your village, you'll walk up to it, you'll read it and think, man, this king that we got, he's, he's a smart guy, he's a wise and great king, we're so lucky to have him for our king. One of the things that he engraves on here concerns uh, uh, people who build homes. This is a, a relevant issue for the people, everyone wants to live under a roof, and so he, he gives an example of his wisdom, his judgment. And so one of the things he has engraved on there is, if you are a guy, a person who builds a house, and you build a house, and then that house later collapses and kills one of the inhabitants, King Hammurabi says that we're going to look at that house, and if we determine it collapsed because it was done incompetently, uh, because you cut corners, uh, because you just didn't know what you were doing, we will put you to death. And if the house collapses and breaks someone's leg, we're going to break your leg. It's an example of the ancient world in a lot of ways. It, it, it sort of certainly highlights the kind of severe justice common to that era. But it also, I think, is a good demonstration of the king's wisdom. Because there's a principle underneath that that I think makes a lot of sense, and it's one we could still benefit from today, which is simply this. Look, if, if you want to have a house built and you live in the ancient world and, and there's no Yelp, you know, there's no unions, there's no other way, there's no Google reviews for you to figure out which home builder to trust, the best possible thing you can do, right, if you want to be sure that this home builder can be trusted, the best thing you can do is what? Is to look at his past work. Look at the things he has already built. Are they still standing? Have they stood the test of time? If they still stand, if you could walk into them and the, and the owners are happy with the quality, then you'll know that this is a builder who can be trusted. Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, makes the same basic point. Look, they're right to be worried about whether or not they can trust these new teachers of the gospel. They're right to look for a way to discern between good teaching, faithful teaching, and false teaching. And Paul says, listen, at the end of the day, the best way to do that, it's, it's not to look at the success of the builder or the success you know, financially of the teacher. It's not even to look at credentials or qualifications or even letters of recommendation, although that's a little bit better. The best thing you want to know, you, you can do, if you want to know if this teacher can be trusted, just like the best thing you can do if you want to know a builder can be trusted, is to look at their work. Look what they've done. 
Paul calls the church in Corinth's attention to his work. He says, you are my work. You are my labor. You are the proof that what I preach to you is the truth. You're the proof that God has been at work in and through my life. All right. So what can we learn today from this very old dispute between Paul and Corinth? Uh, I, I always hear the voice of Wayne Danielson in my head when I have messages like this where Wayne would say, very interesting, but so what, right? So what? Well, I'm sure some of you right at the beginning recognize that this question of how to separate wise, good teaching, true teaching from false teaching is just as important today as it's ever been. In fact, you know, I thought about it this week. If anything, this is maybe more relevant. Um, we have now ac easier access to all kinds of teaching. I mean, you can pull up your phone right now and you can find in seconds teaching from people claiming to be ministers of Jesus from all over the world, some of it excellent and edifying, and other stuff really bad, wrong, completely misleading. And it's important to be able to discern which stuff can be trusted and which stuff can't. So what can we learn from watching Paul work this out with the church in Corinth? Well, I want to suggest three quick things for this morning. First, consult with other believers that you trust and respect. Look, Paul and the early church used letters of recommendation for exactly this purpose. We use them today in all sorts of other situations. Uh, before you put your trust in someone or in some teaching, if you have any question at all, I would suggest to you, bring that person, bring that teaching to other people in the faith that you already trust and respect people who have proven to you to be wise people, and, and ask them for advice. Ask them what they think. And then, this is an important part, listen to them, right? Receive what they have to say. We should take advantage of the priesthood of all believers and just recognize that there are times when other people are just going to see things that we don't. We all have blind spots. That's why we have each other. If two or three wise and trustworthy people tell you that someone can be trusted, it's not a guarantee, but it's an awfully strong mark in its favor. That's number one. Second, as Paul articulates here, we should look for evidence of God's work in and through that person. You know, I don't know if you like that as much as I do. I like that little nugget about the builders. But that's a really helpful principle in this case. Look, if you want to know if someone can be trusted, if their ministry can be trusted, look at the fruit of that ministry. Look at what they've done. Uh, now, this includes, by the way, looking first and foremost for the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you can look at that person and you see those qualities emerging increasingly in their life, you can pretty safely conclude that the Holy Spirit is at work in that person. Uh, this also includes looking for the fruit of God's work through their ministry, evidence of God's work through them. Uh, is there evidence that God is using this person to reach people for the kingdom of God? Is there evidence God is using them to disciple them, to disciple other people, to raise up faithful believers who are more like Jesus? Is God working through them to care for and comfort others? If you see that, you have good, solid reasons to trust what that person teaches. And just as an aside, I, I want to take a minute because I, I was convicted by this a little bit this week. And I have to admit, I think we all find this hard advice to follow. We like it, 
We hear it and we like it. We think, yep, that's good advice. I think that's good advice. But then I think we are all still prone to getting more excited, right? We, we know that on the one half, but then we see somebody with great charisma, right? We listen to them talk. We, we run across someone who's just remarkably eloquent and compelling. And man, we are, we are just impressed, and we just enjoy that, and we get excited, and we get fired up, and we forget all about the fact that, that we first should have looked for fruit in their life, fruit of the Spirit, right? We're drawn to those things, even though that they repeatedly lead us astray. That's what led people astray in ancient Corinth. And as I was thinking about that this week, I, I did this little thought experiment with myself, where I, and I want, I want, I want you to seriously think about this. If we trained ourselves, and it would take training, it really would, if we trained ourselves to become more impressed with humility than with charisma, all right? So if you trained yourself to be more skeptical of charisma and more impressed by genuine humility, if we trained ourselves to be more impressed by goodness, just simple goodness, than with success, whatever that might mean in our current cultural context, if, if we conditioned ourselves to be drawn to and impressed by humility and goodness, I have to believe we would be so much better, so much better at recognizing good teaching and bad teaching for what it is. I, I also think we'd be better at recognizing good leaders and bad leaders and all sorts of other things. But it's going to take some effort and some discipline. We are naturally drawn to those other things. But everyone from Jesus to James to Paul says over and over and over, stop being so impressed by that and look for the evidence of their lives. Look for the evidence of what God does in and through that person. All right, that's number two. So consult with other believers. Look for the evidence of God's work. And number three, uh, before I end, I have to obviously reference the one enormous advantage we have over the church in Corinth, which is we have the New Testament. And for that matter, we have the Old Testament. We have easy access to it any and all times we, we need it. Um, this should be both our first and our ultimate means of evaluating those who claim to minister in the name of Jesus. We should judge everything they say. You should judge everything I say against the word of God, the revealed word of God. And, and let me tell you why, real quickly. If the same spirit that inspired the word of God is in me, and scripture says that it is, then I should never contradict what is written here. Never. I should never ignore parts I just don't like or find difficult. I should never presume, I should never presume to put myself in authority over it and make judgments on it. Now, I'm not saying I won't make mistakes. I will make mistakes. I have before. I will again. I'm not saying that I'm not going to change my mind on what a given passage might say or might mean for us. I have in the past. I have no reason to believe I won't in the future. But what I am saying is that I am committed to submitting my preaching and my teaching and my life to what God has revealed in this word. And if I ever stop committing to that, you should stop listening to me. And if anyone else 
claims to speak on behalf of Jesus, and they do not do that. They are not submitting their teaching, and they're not submitting their life to what God has revealed in his word. They should not have your trust. They should not. I grew up at a church called Berean Baptist. Uh, I was not born when they named the church, but my dad was there, uh, and they decided as a small group, the, the church plant, they wanted to call it Berean, and they wanted to call it Berean because there's this little passage that says that the Bereans were more noble than all the others because they held every teaching up against the word of God. It doesn't matter if you roll in and your name is Paul or your name is Peter, your teaching's getting held up against the word of God. That's what the Bereans did. Now, here's the cool thing. That could have just been a name, um, but it's more than a name, and you know that because I know that, and not just because I was the pastor's kid. Uh, the people who planted that church, that was important to them. And when new people came into the church, they explained that to them. Hey, we called our church this because this is what our church is about. This is our authority here at Berean, the word of God. And when you were a kid in Sunday school, they told you that in Sunday school. Hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a part of this church. We test everything against the word of God. Now, our church isn't named Berean. It's not in our name. But it is in our doctrinal statement. And that's what we say too. That this is our ultimate authority in life and faith. It's God's word. Look, it is just a fact that we have easier access now to more teaching, good and bad, than anybody has ever had access to before in the history of humanity. And sometimes it is very difficult to separate trustworthy teaching from untrustworthy teaching, uh, to separate those who are faithful from those who are leading us astray. But while the problem might be bigger now than it's ever been, it's not a new problem. And the same wisdom that Paul gave to the church in Corinth is just as useful today as it was then. Consult with otherwise believers. Look for evidence of God's work in their life and ministry. And then most crucially, judge what they say against the revealed word of God. Do that and you will know whom to trust. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that in a day and age when there is more information floating around than ever before, good and bad, true and false, um, edifying and totally misleading, we thank you that we have this anchor. Uh, we have access to truth. Lord, that's such an awesome thing, and yet it's so easy to take for granted. Father, help us not to do that. Help us not to neglect uh, the truth and the great gift that you have given us in your word. And Lord, we thank you also for the great gift of salvation. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that Paul is right, uh, that we don't have to be uncertain, that when we see someone proclaiming the message, the one and only message that can produce salvation and eternal life, that we can know that for what it is. That is the truth. That is the gospel. Those are the words that bring life. God, help us to be people who meditate on those words and help us also to be people who share those with the others who desperately need them. In your name we pray, amen.